This is a recording of Moving Beyond the Historicity Question, or a Manifesto for Future Book of Mormon Research by Newell D. Wright, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Newell D. Wright. Review of Daniel Becerra, Amy Easton Flake, Nicholas J. Frederick, and Joseph M. Spencer, Book of Mormon Studies, an Introduction and Guide, Provo, Utah, Religious Studies Center, Brigham Young University, 2022, 184 pages, $19.99 hardback, $15.99 paperback. Abstract. Book of Mormon Studies, an Introduction and Guide by four Brigham Young University religion professors, reviews the field of Book of Mormon Studies from the late 19th century to the current day. After the historical review of the field, the authors lay out a research agenda for the 21st century that, by and large, moves on from the Book of Mormon historicity question that so engaged 20th century scholars. This review examines the author's claims and demonstrates that the scope of this book is not as broad as it could or should be. Absent perspectives, blind spots, incomplete 21st century research trends, and a discussion of research tools should have been included in the book but were not included. This review ends with a discussion of the gatekeeper problem in Book of Mormon studies. Daniel Becerra, Amy Easton Flake, Nicholas J. Frederick, and Joseph M. Spencer, all professors of religion at Brigham Young University, have put together an impressive book, a history of Book of Mormon studies entitled Book of Mormon Studies, an Introduction and Guide. The volume is positioned for and targeted to three different groups of readers. The first reader segment consists of believing Latter-day Saints, especially young ones, who are interested in contributing to Book of Mormon scholarship. The second segment is the many Latter-day Saints who want to deepen their private study of the Book of Mormon without any ambition about producing new scholarship. For this segment, the authors hope the book will aid in navigating a growing corpus of Book of Mormon scholarship and help them discover the best of what has been produced. Finally, and most delicately, as the authors say, we write for non-Latter-day Saint scholars and non-scholars who have some interest in the Book of Mormon and might appreciate some guidance in navigating a field that's so deeply shaped by the concerns of believing readers. Brief Overview Book of Mormon Studies has an introduction, five chapters, and a conclusion. Most helpful for both seasoned and new Book of Mormon scholars is the annotated bibliography at the end of the book. In the following sections, I provide a brief overview of the content of the book before offering a brief critique and summing up. Chapter 1. The first chapter provides a history of the field of Book of Mormon studies, covering approximately 120 years of scholarship, from Orson Pratt's restructuring of the Book of Mormon into chapters and verses in 1879 to roughly the end of the 20th century. Serious students of the Book of Mormon, such as the aforementioned Orson Pratt, James E. Talmadge, B.H. Roberts, George Reynolds, Jan M. Shodal, Roy A. West, William E. Barrett, and Milter R. Hunter, each produced works that pushed the serious study of the Book of Mormon forward. The first scholars trained in a relevant discipline, Hugh W. Nibley, Sidney B. Sperry, and M. Wells Jakeman, arrived on the scene in the late 1940s and helped to found the nascent field of Book of Mormon studies. The chapter details the contributions of each of these scholars, including the tough questions they began tackling after the publication of No Man Knows My History by Fawn McKay Brody. These three scholars, Nibley, Sperry, and Jakeman, dominated the world of Book of Mormon studies through the mid-1960s when each, for different reasons, stopped publishing about the Book of Mormon 
leaving the field to younger scholars. The following years largely witnessed a pause in Book of Mormon studies, during which several notable events occurred, including the Church's withdrawal of sponsorship for various historical projects, the Mark Hoffman forgeries, countercultural movements, the debate over blacks holding the priesthood, an increase in criticism against the Church, and President Ezra Taft Benson's renewal, renewed emphasis on the Book of Mormon. These events spurred the creation of the second wave of Book of Mormon scholarly studies in the 20th century and the creation of the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies, or FARMS, in 1979. FARMS honored the three pioneers, Jakeman, Sperry, and Nibley, by making their works available to a new generation. It also featured the work of new scholars such as John W. Welch and John Sorensen. One aspect of farms that Book of Mormon studies laments was the intense focus on the ancient origins of the Book of Mormon, or the historicity question, at the expense of all other questions. In particular, farm scholars found themselves in a more or less constant argument with authors published by signature books. Farms devoted a lot of time, effort, and ink to defending the traditional views of the Book of Mormon and challenging the thesis in signature books' publications that the Book of Mormon is, at best, a work of inspired fiction. This conflict between farms and signature books, Book of Mormon Studies points out, determined the shape of Book of Mormon Studies for most of the 1990s. The 20th century question that farms sought to answer Book of Mormon Studies suggests was this, is the Book of Mormon at the ancient text that it claims to be? The influence of farms began to wane early in the new millennium, Book of Mormon Studies posits, with the publication of two books, Terrell L. Givens by the Hand of Mormon, A Reception History, and Grant Hardy's Understanding the Book of Mormon, a work of literary criticism. Both books bracketed the truth claims about the Book of Mormon. That is, they set the historicity question aside and focused on other important aspects of the Book of Mormon. Both books were published to wide acclaim by major university presses not affiliated with the church and, Book of Mormon studies suggest, opened the way for others to write about the Book of Mormon without reference to historicity. Chapter 2. The second chapter of Book of Mormon studies describes the field of Book of Mormon studies as the authors see it today. They identify seven principal areas of study, textual production, historical origins, literary criticism, intertextuality, theological interpretations, reception history, and ideological critique. Each of these will be briefly described. Textual production tries to reconstruct as responsibly as possible the circumstances surrounding the translation and publication of the Book of Mormon. An example of this approach that the authors highlight is From Darkness into Light by Michael Hubbard McKay and Garrett J. Dirkmott, a research project that benefited from systematic study of documents made public by the Joseph Smith Papers Project. The next area, Historical Origins, focuses on the origins of the Book of Mormon, the historicity question that Farms focused on. An impressive work in this vein, according to Book of Mormon Studies, was Brant Gardner's six-volume commentary on the Book of Mormon, Second Witness. Book of Mormon Studies includes in this category studies that suggest the Book of Mormon is a modern document and should be studied as a product of 19th century culture and, in, culture and influences. The third area of research, literary criticism, is defined by Book of Mormon Studies as a type of criticism that, when applied to scripture, involves analysis of how a text organizes the stories and ideas it presents to the readers, 
especially focusing on the way that form gives shape to content. Hardy's Understanding the Book of Mormon is the paradigmatic example of this area of research, but many other researchers have engaged in literary criticism over the years, including some who have published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship. The fourth area, intertextuality, refers to relationships of interaction between a volume of scripture and some other text. In Book of Mormon studies, this usually concerns the relationship between the Book of Mormon and the Bible. For example, what is one to make of New Testament language in the Book of Mormon? One of the authors of Book of Mormon studies, Nicholas J. Frederick, has made intertextuality a major portion of his life's work. This category also includes comparative studies that examine similar language and concepts in the scriptures of different religious traditions, such as Postponing Heaven by Catholic scholar Jad Hatem. The fifth area, theological interpretations, can be described as reasoned reflection on God or on revelation. The authors are careful to distinguish between doctrinal and theological interpretations of scripture. Doctrine is, in the words of Adam S. Miller, authoritative, decided, and announced by leaders of the church. By contrast, theology is deliberately academic and speculative, addressing questions of interest to the life of faith, but of little or no institutional importance, page 53. An example of theological research is John Christopher Thomas's A Pentecostal Reads the Book of Mormon. Another example is the Brief Theological Introduction series published by the Maxwell Institute in 2020. Reception history, the sixth research area, traces the ways people have received, appropriated, and used scriptural texts throughout history, page 54. This includes the history of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, from its translation and printing in the 19th century to today. One example Book of Mormon studies mentions is non-member Paul Gutyar's The Book of Mormon, a biography. This book chronicles such aspects of the Book of Mormon as its influence on missionary work and its depiction in literature, art, illustration, film, and theater. Givens influential by the Hand of Mormon, the book that first broke away from a focus on historicity, is also an example of reception history. The last research area is ideology critique, often perspectives of underrepresented demographics and diverse disciplinary backgrounds. These studies focus on topics like disability, gender, race, post-colonialism, and social justice, page 57. Reflecting the zeitgeist of our times, these same approaches appear in disciplines ranging from agriculture to zoology and everything in between, so it is no surprise they also appear in Book of Mormon studies. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, Overcoming Obstacles, discusses the contribution of Royal Skousen in his critical text project. Much is made in Book of Mormon studies about the need for a critical text as a foundation for Book of Mormon studies. The chapter also reviews the history of various commentaries and calls for a newer type of commentary to be written, one that is written not by a single individual, but by a group of scholars. These commentaries would resemble the Book of Mormon Reference Companion, which, though not a commentary, was written by multiple authors who condensed and incorporated most of 20th century Book of Mormon research into a single volume. The chapter also calls for more civil discourse in the discussion of the historicity question and the questions raised in the emerging research agendas detailed in Chapter 2. It's time for all accusations and all questioning of motive to cease, the authors say. They continue. 
We can feel confident doing this because taking the Book of Mormon seriously is already assuming the position of the apologist. We need to recognize that both scholars particularly shaped by 20th century concerns and scholars particularly shaped by 21st century concerns are all apologists together to the extent that they work seriously on the Book of Mormon. All earnest readers of the Book of Mormon attune themselves to its truth, even if in the act of thinking further about difficult issues they occasionally draw conclusions that make more traditional believers temporarily uncomfortable. Certainly, all readers of the Book of Mormon who explicitly avow faith in the truth of the book deserve the benefit of the doubt from all other readers who avow faith in the truth of the book. We're all working on a truth that's grander than any of our individual approaches to it can reveal. Page 79. Book of Mormon Studies calls for more academic charity in research, defined as the practice of attributing the most reasonable or most defensible argument to one's opponent before critiquing it. In the context of faith, it includes the assumption, unless clear evidence indicates otherwise, that scholars are working in good faith for good purposes. They make the claim that this is necessary because readers are just as likely, if not more likely, to dismiss the Book of Mormon over questions about racism, gender, or violence today as they are over questions about historicity, page 81. This chapter is a plea for tolerance from researchers who do not focus exclusively on the historicity of the Book of Mormon. It asks for tolerance for those who move beyond the historicity question. Chapter 4. Chapter 4, Common Questions, looks at questions that have arisen during the first two decades of the 21st century regarding the Book of Mormon and contrasts how they are now answered with how they were answered by 20th century scholars. It attempts to answer the question about what the truth of the Book of Mormon means, page 83, in a broadening field of Book of Mormon inquiry. The chapter poses seven questions relevant to both 20th and 21st century researchers. How was the Book of Mormon translated? Why have changes been made to the text of the Book of Mormon? Did the Book of Mormon derive from 19th century texts? What about anachronisms in the Book of Mormon? Does language from Isaiah belong in the Book of Mormon? Does the Book of Mormon depend on the New Testament? Where did the events of the Book of Mormon take place? Page 84. One example will suffice to describe the flavor of this chapter. The Book of Mormon contains language from the New Testament that was written scores or hundreds of years before such language was written down in the Old World. What are we to make of this? A traditional 20th century answer holds both Book of Mormon and New Testament authors had access to, quote, similarly worded ancient texts in, say, the brass plates that aren't extant today, unquote, page 101. Newer approaches accept that the New Testament language is there by divine design, and researchers then seek to understand what it means in a different theological context. The contemporary scholars cited say the language is not simply plagiarism, as critics have claimed, but rather provides new ways of understanding old and familiar language by locating it in new theological contexts. Chapter 5. Chapter 5, New Directions, provides a rationale for moving away from an exclusive fo focus on historicity and towards other compelling questions. Based on their experience teaching religion at Brigham Young University, the authors state, quote, Readers of the Book of Mormon today are as likely, if not in fact more likely, to reject the Book of Mormon for reasons that have nothing to do with historicity. They're as likely or more likely to drop the book and the religion endorsing it 
because the volume seems to them to be irrelevant, archaic, boring, unenlightening, or ethically troubling. This is something we see among our students too often, and there's reason to help a new generation see the book's power that we see. Page 112. They liken the historicity debate to starting a car repeatedly in a garage, but never taking it out on the road to see how it drives and where it will take them. Making sure the engine works is important, but once they have, once that has been determined, there is much to learn about the car that can be learned only by going for a ride. The authors freely acknowledge they stand on the very large shoulders of 20th century researchers, but they argue there are new and different questions to answer that are relevant to a different time, age, and set of read readers. The rest of the chapter examines questions contemporary readers are likely to raise, along with perspectives on those new questions. Racial identity is an important current issue. When the Book of Mormon seems to cast goodness as white and evil as black, how do we go about explaining these passages? Women are clearly underrepresented in the Book of Mormon. Why? What can we learn from their absence? What about mental health problems and other disabilities? Why is there so much violence in the Book of Mormon? How is that relevant for us today? What about politics and war? As Book of Mormon study states, quote, a reader with intense worries about political instability and growing political polarization is less likely to balk at the lack of a recognizable geographic model that fits the Book of Mormon than at the book's apparent readiness to be politically appropriated by extremist groups, unquote, page 121. In short, how is the Book of Mormon relevant to pressing issues in the 21st century? Answering this last question, the authors claim, is the goal of 21st century Book of Mormon studies. The authors desire to show the book's relevance, that it is not simply boring, irrelevant, cliched, or uninformative, page 122. They want to show the importance of the Book of Mormon in an increasingly secular world that it presents, quote, a nuanced and rich Christology and a theology of grace that has deeply important practical implications for the life of faith, unquote, page 123. The Appendix The greatest contribution of this book may be its appendix. There are five sections in the appendix, four of which are annotated, getting started, getting serious, getting specialized, and getting around. A final section lists other sources cited in the book. As I compared citations in the appendix with my quite substantial library, I discovered that I was missing important volumes and articles. Thus, the appendix alone was worth the purchase price of the book. Critique. I really liked all 184 pages of Book of Mormon Studies, an introduction and guide. The four authors have gone to extraordinary lengths to remain fair and even-handed in their treatment of 20th century scholars and scholarship, while at the same time promoting their 21st century agenda. My impression is they have, by and large, succeeded in this effort. And yet, the book still has some holes in it. I will now examine the problems of absent perspectives, research trends that could have been added to Chapter 5, research tools, and what I call the gatekeeper problem. I then sum up and conclude. Absent Perspectives while I quite liked this book, it would have been stronger if they had included as an author someone, anyone, for whom historicity is still a burning issue. While the authors do try to be scrupulously fair, the deck is clearly and myopically stacked in favor of what they frame as the 21st century view. Sometimes their bias is explicit and conscious, e.g., as it was made clear in Chapter 5, 
but other times it is implicit and perhaps unconscious. An example is the uneven representation of the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, which one of the authors, Joseph M. Spencer, edits, and Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship. There are 30 references from the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies in the appendix, but only a single must-read reference from the Interpreter, David M. Belknap's summary essay entitled The Inclusive Anti-Discrimination Message of the Book of Mormon, a 175-page article that advances the Chapter 5 agenda in Book of Mormon Studies. Further, most articles cited from the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies come from 2017 or later. Earlier papers advocating for historicity are not cited. Finally, the description of interpreter in the Book of Mormon, in Book of Mormon Studies is far from kind. The journal is positioned in the book as a backward-looking publication in which farms retreads, who have nothing new to say, publish marginally relevant historicity papers. In one place, they even get the name of the journal wrong, calling it the Mormon Interpreter, page 40. Here is what Book of Mormon Studies has to say about Interpreter. Quote, theory slash approach. The Book of Mormon is an ancient document, as will be demonstrated through comparative study of the text and ancient Near Eastern documents and sources. Major figures slash movements, Hugh Nibley and the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies in the 20th century, scholars publishing in The Interpreter in the 21st century, unquote, page 41. Quote, as publications in the Mormon Interpreter, later renamed Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, show, there nevertheless remains much work to do on the historical origins of the Book of Mormon, unquote, page 40. Quote, the Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, publishes a good deal of scholarship on the Book of Mormon, most of it in the vein of traditional 20th century scholarship, unquote, page 153. The reason, then, for privileging the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies over the interpreter in Book of Mormon Studies is that the former is avant-garde and the later is backward-looking. This privileging of the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies does not seem to be warranted by impact on the discipline of Book of Mormon Studies as measured by a citation analysis. Articles in interpreter are likely to be cited twice as often as articles appearing in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. Using Harzing's Publisher Parish software, I pulled all articles that have citation data from Google, Google Scholar from 2012 to 2018 from the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies and compared them with articles about the Book of Mormon published in the Interpreter during the same period. Newer articles were cited, are cited less frequently than older articles, so I do not include anything newer than 2018. Also, older articles are cited more frequently as they have been around longer, so I did not look at articles published before 2012. The Journal of Book of Mormon Studies published 35 articles of all types that were cited at least once during that time period for a total of 91 citations, or 2.68 citations per article. Interpreter published 69 articles focusing on the Book of Mormon that were cited at least once during that time period for a total of 391 citations, or an average of 5.75 citations per article, more than double the citation rate of the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. I believe that the influence of the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies will continue to wane because it is now locked behind a paywall and is not freely available to the three target audiences described at the beginning of Book of Mormon Studies. This same analysis suggests a bright, impactful future for the interpreter. 
This blindness towards the interpreter is one example of the author's unconscious bias. The Book of Mormon is temple text. In the discussions about the major questions being asked in the 21st century, the authors ignored several very big questions that are important to many readers and scholars, including the Book of Mormon as a temple text. Book of Mormon studies described John W. Welch's book, The Sermon at the Temple and the Sermon on the Mount, as, quote, essential, unquote, page 144. In his book, Welch examines the Sermon at the Temple in the Book of Mormon as a temple text. This laid the foundation for other studies that followed. At approximately the same time, non-member scholar Margaret Barker was illuminating the function of the Old Testament temple in several books and papers. Building on the work of Welch and Barker, noted science fiction author D. John Butler attempted to fully illuminate the temple text in the Book of Mormon, particularly in 1 Nephi 8-14, 2 Nephi 4, several chapters in Alma, 29, 30, 37, 45, and 46, Helaman 5, Ether 3, and other places. According to Butler, quote, We're collectively on the brink of realizing that the Book of Mormon is a temple book. Plain and Precious Things set out a paradigm for studying the Book of Mormon as temple literature, which is to say, an overarching idea that the Book of Mormon was written by temple worshippers, for temple worshippers, in the imagery of the temple, and teaching temple doctrines. Without seeing the temple in it, we can't fully understand the Book of Mormon. Other scholars have also come to the same conclusion. Bokovoy argues that the interaction between Nephi and the Spirit of the Lord in 1 Nephi 11 is a temple text. He followed up with another article about temple imagery in Jacob's sermons. Don Bradley's The Lost 116 Pages, Reconstructing the Book of Mormon's Missing Stories, described by Book of Mormon Studies as, quote, particularly unique and celebrated, unquote, page 141, has two chapters on temple allusions in the Book of Mormon. Joseph M. Spencer, one of the authors of Book of Mormon Studies, gives a unique Latter-day Saint temple reading of Isaiah 6, or 2 Nephi 16. In another book, Spencer provides an interpretation of 1 and 2 Nephi as creation, fall, atonement, and veil. He concludes that Nephi's whole record is oriented by and structured around this most crucial, clearly temple-centered theme. The Book of Mormon as Temple Text is an area ripe for future research. Mother in Heaven As the Book of Mormon Studies authors seek to find the feminine in the Book of Mormon, they have left out any mention of Mother in Heaven. Mother in Heaven, says Val Larson, is remarkably visible in the Book of Mormon. Unquote. Hints about Mother in Heaven are particularly strong in the Book of Mormon when talking about the Tree of Life in Lehi's Dream and Nephi's Vision, as Larson has pointed out upon at least four occasions. Much of the groundwork for scholarly studies on Mother in Heaven was laid by Margaret Barker in her many books about the temple, and by Kevin Christensen, who first brought her to the attention of Restoration scholars. Daniel C. Peterson's work on the topic was seminal. Studying Mother in Heaven imagery in the Book of Mormon would go a long way to countering the other prominent negative female symbol in the Book of Mormon, the mother of abominations and the whore of all the earth in 1 Nephi 14, 9-12. This is another potentially fruitful area of research not mentioned in Book of Mormon studies. Missing discussion of research tools. A missing area in the appendix for would-be Book of Mormon scholars is a section on research tools. 
For example, WordCruncher is an indispensable tool for my scholarly research into the Book of Mormon and other documents, but is not mentioned in Book of Mormon studies. WordCruncher lets one search, study, and analyze words or phrases in many helpful ways. Another indispensable tool is the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. Regardless of where they come down on the question of historicity, Book of Mormon scholars should be attentive to the meaning of English words used in the book at the time when it was first published. In my own reading of the book, a week rarely goes by without consulting this dictionary at least once or twice. As a, speci as a specialist in qualitative literature, I have also found text management tools to be enormously useful. My favorite is NVivo, which allows one to manage large volumes of textual material, as well as graphics and video. It does not generate interpretations of the data, that is the scholar's job, but it helps one tag and organize data and identify intertextual linkages, linkages and, that enrich the meaning of a passage or that develop themes across a set of related passages. Though I do not pretend to be a scholar of Hebrew, Greek, or other ancient Semitic languages, I do find some language tools helpful in my study of the Book of Mormon and the Bible. One free online go-to resource that I use is the Polyglot Bible. Most words in the Old and New Testaments are rendered in Hebrew or Greek and described and explained in English. When I question how a word or phrase in the Book of Mormon is used in the Old and New Testaments, I turn to the Polyglot Bible. Other similar tools are available, either freely or for purchase. Another useful tool for believing scholars is the Scripture Citation Index. Each time a prophet, apostle, or other general authority cites a verse of scripture in a general conference talk, that use is linked in this index, which includes conference addresses from 1942 onward, plus the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith and the complete journal of discourses. One lesson I have learned from using the scripture citation index is that many, many verses of scripture have never been commented upon by church authorities, especially in the Old Testament. But even in the Book of Mormon, entire chapters exist without authoritative comment. For example, 2 Nephi 20, Alma 52 and 59, Helaman 1 and 3 Nephi 3. And many chapters have only one or a few references, meaning there are many comment-free verses to ponder. Even when there is a reference to a particular verse, the authoritative commenter offer, often offers a different interpretation than the one I am considering. This leaves much room for speculation, especially for theological research. There are other useful research tools that could have been highlighted in the book, perhaps in the appendix, but were not. The gatekeeper problem. Another problem with the book and its contents is that it feels somewhat inbred. I greatly admire much of the work done by the authors, but I also admire work done by other scholars not affiliated with the organizations in which the authors exercise gatekeeping power. The authors have been remarkably productive researchers and have made valuable contributions to our understanding of the Book of Mormon, but so have others unaffiliated with the Maxwell Institute, the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, the Latter-day Saint Theological Seminar, and the Academy of Book of Mormon Studies. The authors of Book of Mormon Studies complain about too restrictive gatekeeping and a lack of openness to alternative perspectives in the Farms era. Whether those concerns have merit, the authors themselves generally include in their list of contemporary scholarship work primarily done by the authors and others affiliated with the organizations in which they serve as principals. The value of their survey would be greater if their canon of worthwhile research were more open and broader. Summary. Book of Mormon Studies, an introduction and guide, is a very useful history of and future agenda for 
Book of Mormon Studies in the 21st Century. It was written by Book of Mormon scholars and features new and continuing research on the Book of Mormon. While the scope of the work is more limited than it should be, I highly recommend the book for anyone who is a serious student of the Book of Mormon. Newell D. Wright is a professor of marketing and international business at North Dakota State University in Fargo, North Dakota. Born in Provo and raised in Orem, Utah, he holds a Ph.D. in marketing from Virginia Tech, 1993, and an MBA, 1987, and a BA, 1985, in French literature from Brigham Young University. He is widely published in the marketing discipline and is currently the editor of the Journal of Consumer Satisfaction, Dissatisfaction, and Complaining Behavior. He has led or directed 57 study abroad programs around the world since 1998 and has visited 51 countries, mostly with a group of students in tow. He is also a lifelong student of the Book of Mormon. He is married to the former Julie Gold of Abingdon, Virginia, and they are the parents of four children and the grandparents of six grandchildren. This has been a recording of Moving Beyond the Historicity Question, or a manifest, Manifesto for Future Book of Mormon Research by Newell D. Wright, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 55, 2023, read by Newell D. Wright. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.